You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of God who is in heaven. For God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So the phrase for tonight is, love your enemies. I don't remember writing that review. I think somebody, <clears throat> somebody has hacked the Twitters. That's what I like to say. Um, just a couple of items as we're coming here towards the end. Uh, a couple of you have asked me about resources uh, and books. Um, and so I've got a few of my books out there, uh, which all have to do with spiritual life and practice. And uh, so this one's Creating a Life with God, and this is kind of a how-to book about prayer practices and the spiritual life and also... Uh, historical figures uh, in our tradition that each one of them uh, either invented or kind of uh, exemplified that practice. Uh, the other one is uh, leading a life with God, and it looks at these same practices from the point of view of leadership. And each one of uh, the practices in that book has a biblical uh, leader who's connected to them. So uh, they're 10 bucks, and there are only a few of them out there, and so if you want one, just put 10 bucks in the box. They're also um, on Amazon, and you can get electronic versions there if you're into electronic books. So I do want to lift up and just uh, thank you all again uh, for having me here, for all the work that all of you are doing to make this possible. Um, you know, for Pete, for the band, for the uh, young people. I got to meet with them today for a little while, and that was really lovely, and uh, they're just uh, terrific. And uh, for Joe and, you know, all the people that help at the waterfront, and I think you all, this is a pretty big group effort. So uh, thank you very much, and, and thank you for your attentiveness uh, here. Uh, one of my favorite little phrases, there's a, a woman who a, was a 20th century mystic named Simone Weil, and a very interesting person. Uh, and one of her most beautiful uh, little sentences is that uh, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. I really like that. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. So you've all been very generous to me, and I really appreciate it. So we've been on this journey exploring the issue of spiritual community. And what is that about? How does that form? What is it that uh, Jesus is trying to say to us about this? And 
One of the ways of trying to understand what spiritual community is about in our tradition is to try to, again, understand very clearly what is the problem that God is trying to solve? What is the problem that God is trying to solve? Uh, There was a, a great sort of industrial espionage movie uh, a number of years ago, and it's dated by the fact that email was a really like cool thing in this movie. It was really unusual that people were getting emails. And, uh, and so there's all this stuff going on with this business and with you know, people getting after each other and everything. And uh, the, the sort of hero of the movie keeps getting this anonymous email that says, fix the problem. And, uh, you know, and at first he has no idea what this is talking about, and of course it turns out that there's some problem going on in the company that people are trying to keep secret, and that's really what the issue is for all the other stuff that's going on, right? Fix the problem. So what's the problem that God is trying to solve? And uh, in many ways, the problem, right, is this basic alienation that we experience. This is what we're talking about, you know, with the whole bubble thing and what happened with Adam and Eve. And, and this alienation is so painful to us, right? This separation that we experience, this separation from ourselves, this separation from each other, uh, and of course, ultimately, this separation from the divine. And, and that alienation, <clears throat> hurts so much, right? And, and God has this incredible compassion and love for God's creation uh, that God is trying to fix that alienation. And in the second great story of the Bible, right, the Cain and Abel story, we see uh, that alienation being played out and we see what it is that our solution uh, tries to be, right? So Cain and Abel, you know, both want to uh, please God. They both want God to acknowledge them, right? This is this, this feeling that I really want to bridge this gap. And, uh, and so, you know, they bring their offerings, and their offerings are relative to what they do. And, of course, God appreciates both of their offerings. But one of the things about this this sense of alienation and separation is that we even have a hard time experiencing when it is that somebody, whether that's a human somebody or a divine somebody, we, we even have a hard time knowing when somebody loves us. It's not just that we feel separate, but it's that even when somebody is coming towards us in this loving way, we oftentimes don't experience that. And so, um, you know, Cain has this idea that God isn't happy with him. And, you know, his solution, right, is the bubble solution, right? Just kill the other tribe. And so uh, he kills his brother, 
And uh, of course, that doesn't solve the problem. That doesn't solve the problem. And so really, if we, if we think about that story and if we think about how human beings all throughout history have tried to engage with this issue, what we see is <clears throat> that we are constantly trying to accumulate. We're trans- constantly trying to accumulate and, and become secure and think that, it, you know, if I have enough stuff, if I have enough land, if I have a big enough retirement account, if I have enough of these things, right, then my alienation will be solved. I will be safe. And what that uh, accumulation does, of course, in the material world is that it also means that there are going to be other people who are not going to get enough. And in many ways, if we look at the uh, entire sort of thrust and direction of the Hebrew law, uh, we see that it is one way of, again, trying to solve this problem. There are all kinds of things uh, in those somewhat bizarre to us and arcane laws about the fact that basically at the bottom line, everybody should have enough to eat, Everybody should be taken care of. You know, that's the minimum. That's the minimum. But when human beings get into this frantic accumulation thing, uh, of course that doesn't happen. And so this creates, again, this creates literally every single problem that we experience as human beings. Literally every single problem can be traced back to this. And I want to give you one example because this is a very current big example. And I want to preface this by saying what I'm going to talk about with this has nothing to do with politics. You're going to be tempted to think that I'm talking about politics. I'm not. Okay, what I'm talking about is this human process of what we do to try to accumulate and keep ourselves feeling safe and secure and what the results are of that. So this is an awareness practice I'm going to take us through. So first of all, I'm going to start by asking you all a question. You know, it seems to me, I don't know any of you very well, um, but it seems to me that, you know, everybody here has pretty decent lives. You have nice places to live, I think. You have interesting work and jobs, different things like that. So given your lives, would any of you, would any of you uh, leave your life, put on a backpack, and try to walk and hitchhike and get on freight trains and travel 6,000 miles to try to live in another country? So who would do that? Right, nobody, right? (laughs) It depends on the day. (laughs) Right, it is sometimes a fleeting thought. (laughs) But then we come to our senses and we think, nah, 
I don't think so. So, right, and the reason that you would not do that is because, you know, your life is basically, except when, you know, every kid gets the flu and you're all throwing up and all that kind of stuff, except for those days, everything is pretty decent. Everything's pretty decent. So, when we see, for example, all these people from Central America trying to come to our country, doing exactly that thing, right? Giving up their lives, putting on their little sacks, heading out on foot, climbing on trains, cars, trying to come here, 6,000-mile journey. One of the things that we have to ask ourselves is, which we normally do not ask ourselves, and this is the point of this story, why is that happening? Why is that happening? Because what we all know, and this is true about every person everywhere, when your life is okay, you don't want to do that. Because it's not fun. <laughs> it's not fun. Okay, so let's look at what has happened in that part of the world over the last hundred years. So what has happened in that part of the world over the last hundred years is that in the early 20th century, right, a bunch of business people in America and in Western Europe made a lot of good business decisions. Right? And what do I mean by that? They made decisions that were going to accumulate more for them and for their companies. They were going to make more money. Right? And this included people like the Rockefellers, all kinds of uh, German companies, that are coffee companies, but also are companies like Audi and Volkswagen, all these kinds of giant conglomerates. They made good business decisions. And the good business decisions were to buy up most of the land in Central America for coffee plantations, banana plantations, uh, all kinds of things like that. Right? It was a good business decision. And what happened then was that they went into partnership with several prominent families in those areas. Again, very good, smart business decision to make all of these places run. To make all these places run. And uh, this accumulation was so intensive that right now, for example, in Guatemala, 80% of the land is owned by six families. Think about that. 80% of the land is owned by six families. So like half of you here would own 80% of Guatemala. Okay? And then, as time went on, as time went on, uh, people, of course, who did not have any of the land and who were dispossessed and who were working on these plantations for basically nothing and who were sad and unhappy and everything, they tried, they wanted to make their life better. And so they would try to develop some political unrest, they would try to rise up against some of these families. And back in the United States and in Western Europe, these companies, uh, one of which had become a company called United Fruit, which at one time was the biggest food conglomerate in the world. 
uh, they would go to places like Washington or the capitals of Germany, whatever, and say, look, we, we need some help. You know, we, we have a lot of business interests, right? We're making a lot of money. This is great for us. And so, uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, our tax dollars uh, went to overthrow government after government in these areas to install people who would maintain this economic setup, uh, including, in the 1980s, uh, weaponry that, again, we had sold to uh, some of the Guatemalan army units, uh, machine gunning the president to death in his office in the Capitol. So, again, all of this was done with the idea of maintaining this flow of wealth. Now then, of course, as time has gone on, and as population has increased, and as pollution has increased, and as poverty has increased, Maintaining this control over the population for the sake of increased profits back home uh, gets harder and harder. And there's fewer and fewer places for the peasants to go. Uh, there's fewer and fewer resources. Uh, the pollution in these countries is rising astronomically. Uh, right now, at the mouth of the Guatemalan River, where the Guatemalan River uh, flows into the Pacific Ocean, there is uh, a reef of plastic trash. And this reef of plastic trash is four feet high, and it's about six miles long. And it's just all the garbage because of course, there are no real garbage services or anything like that, public services. And so all of this plastic stuff, which again is being sold to all these people by these companies, just lies everywhere on the roadside, washes into the streams, goes down to the ocean. This plastic reef is so large at this point, it will probably never be cleaned up. And it's increasing and growing every day. All right, now, again, from the perspective of, uh, on our side of the border, these are all good business decisions because they increase company profits, all that kind of stuff, right? So what happens then, of course, to those people eventually is that their lives become completely uh, unmanageable completely unmanageable. Uh, they're starving to death. Uh, there's incredible levels of violence in these countries uh, because everybody's just at each other's throats, quite literally. Uh, and so, they eventually make the only decision that is left to them, which is pretty much a non-decision, but it's the only decision left to them, which is to say, well, let's go somewhere else. Let's just try to go somewhere else. And, of course, uh, eventually, they end up trying to come here. The same place that really created the conditions 
on the basis of this accumulation that caused the problem to begin with. Right? And so this is just one example. We could go through, again, every single problem that we have and every single problem that the world has ever had. Right? We could look at bubonic plague in the Middle Ages. We, we look at anything. And what we would see is the same exact cycle that a desire for endless accumulation by some eventually leads to death and poverty and oppression for others who then eventually try to fix that out of desperation by doing things that disrupt the people who started the accumulation to begin with. This is the basic, basic cycle of history and society. And we see it all throughout the Bible, right? I mean, you know, the books of kings read like just this bad repetition, right? And the next king didn't follow the law of God, and it was a disaster, and he died. And then the next king came along, and he did not follow the law of God, and it was a disaster, and he died, right? Over and over and over again. So... When we start thinking about this, and we think, okay, so what are other options? Right? And this is where Jesus comes along. This is where Jesus comes along, and, you know, whether or not Jesus made up the option to begin with, or was just smart, you know, is Jesus part of the Trinity? Was he thinking about it to begin with? I don't know. Whatever. That's sort of circular and a little confusing. But wherever the idea came from, Jesus comes along with this other option. And it's the option that terrifies us. And the option is, give up everything. That's the other option. What if I stop accumulating? What if I stop accumulating? then I'm not trying to grab somebody else's stuff and they stop accumulating. And, and then it's like Paul and Helen Shanks. There's always enough for everybody. And so really, this is the essence of spiritual community. This is the essence of spiritual community. If you look at every rule of life that any community has written, and these rules of life uh, started being written in the 5th century uh, all around the Mediterranean basin. There are some in what we now call the East and some in the West, but at that time they weren't being called those things. There were a bunch of different people that were starting to say, okay, how can we do this Jesus thing right now? What is it that Jesus is asking us to do? And we want to take this very seriously. And so they create these rules that basically ask people to be willing to give up everything. Both literally in terms of uh, vows of poverty, but also spiritually in terms of how they start relating to one another. 
That is, they want to engage in these practices that allow these bubbles to disappear. Now, what we need to really understand about this is, you know, if we want to take this at all, uh, if we want to pay attention to it at all, <laughs> um, is that we have to recognize, when we talk about this bubble, what is it that we are talking about, really? We are talking about everything about our identity. Right? We all make I statements. Right? I like this. I dislike that. I'm impatient. I'm patient. I'm nice. I'm this. I don't like this. I do like that. Right? All the things about who I am. Right? You know, I'm a Minnesotan. I like the state fair. I, you know, all these things. And to give up our identity is stepping into this emptiness. Stepping into this emptiness that we say is full of God's spirit, but, you know, on most days we're not really too sure. We're not really too sure. Uh, one of the earliest uh, great mystical texts uh, in the West uh, was written by somebody, we don't, uh, we don't know who it was, uh, probably written in the 400s. Uh, and the person came to be called Pseudo-Dionyses, uh, but uh, again, that's just some label that they put on these uh, texts. And one of the things that this person wrote very short treatise called Mystical Theology, which really uh, serves as one of the earliest uh, descriptions of what it is like to enter into this kind of void. Uh, and many of the subsequent more famous uh, texts that were written over the next 700 years, or 1,000 years really, uh, were kind of based on a lot of this work. And he has this wonderful uh, phrase in there where he talks about the fact that entering deeply into life of prayer uh, is entering into this darkness where we experience nothing and we know nothing so that we may find love and knowledge that is beyond all of what we know and what we experience. And so again, this is the, the basic activity of spiritual community uh, from the point of view of our tradition. That we are encouraged with other people in particular places and time to be willing to start to practice giving up to be willing to stop this endless accumulation. And you know, particularly, particularly in America, and when I came to Minnesota, I wasn't a real big um, garage sale person. I didn't really understand. I didn't really understand fully garage sales. I mean, I'd seen a garage sale or two, but I didn't get it. I didn't get it. And, um, you know, in Crookston, I met people 
who are like the Waltons of garage sales. Right? I mean, these people, they, they're just unbelievable. And so there are these garage sales, you know, all throughout the spring, the summer, the fall, you go around. But then I started hearing these funny stories about some of these garage sales. And people would say to me, wow, you know, I just saw that thing at your garage sale that I sold at my garage sale last year. Right? And what this started to tell me and point out to me is something that we already know, that we in America here could never buy another thing again. And we could all trade our stuff around for years, decades, until, yeah, at some point it would start to wear out. Right? And we would all be fine. Stock market might not be so fine, but we would be fine. Okay. So that's all for tonight. And uh, we're going to have our groups, and we're going to wrap up tomorrow. So thank you all very much.